The scripture reading today is from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone um, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. And cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness. Into that place will there be weeping and gashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, Christ community, my name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it is a joy to be in Matthew chapter 25 this morning with you. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Uh, But as you're turning there, um, one thing I wanted to share is, uh, you know, regardless of if if you like football or not, if you watch football, or if you think that football is a sport where it could end in a 0-0 tie and still be exciting, uh, you probably know the name of Johnny Manziel. Uh, Johnny Manziel is a quarterback where there's been a lot of talk and conversation about. Um, probably one of the more um, hopeful, uh, aspiring quarterbacks in, in recent years. Uh, and he's been talked about for a number of reasons, one of which being that in college he had this kind of meteoric rise as a quarterback. He was the only, I believe, the only freshman to win the Heisman Trophy. And there was a great excitement about the potential of of this uh, really short little guy becoming a really talented quarterback in the NFL. And so a lot of conversation, a lot of hope and hype around this guy. But, But as he got into the NFL... His name, his nickname, which was associated with the sport he played, Johnny Football, uh, he didn't really match up to the hype. Uh, Johnny did not really develop as a quarterback, um, even playing for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, and so, uh, that's a joke, if you like football, you'd probably get it. But, uh, the, the, but basically, he doesn't develop, and not only that, not only did he, he fail to kind of cultivate and become this talented quarterback, but he, he really went on this downward spiral. Uh, choosing a path that, that led to things like alcoholism and drug abuse, uh, domestic violence, 
and, and severe depression. And, and, and we can look at this, and I share this story not, not to shame him or bash him, but, but we look at the story and some of us may think, oh, what a shame or, or what a loser. And, and, and we have to be very careful that we don't quickly think that, that we uh, are immune to, to similar paths because Manzel, it may look like he wasted away a lot of talent, and that's true. He had such potential and ability, so much hype around this player, and yet it's thrown away, wasted, and squandered. And, and we have to be careful that we're not so quick to point the finger because each and every one of us has, has received various talents and gifts, abilities, resources, connections, opportunities, privileges that we don't take full advantage of. There are many situations we can think of that, man, I, I never really developed this skill. I, I wasted away this opportunity. If I could go back, I would change this. I would have invested in this relationship, in this person, in this career, whatever it may be. We all have things that we have failed to develop, and potentially we have found ourselves squandering and wasting away. Now, I share this because in some ways, I mean, there's this kind of terrifying thought within us of like, man, I, I don't want to find that at the end of my life, I've wasted time, I have wasted relationships, I've wasted resources, I've wasted my calling. I think this is a question we ought to consider because each and every one of us has received something, opportunities, gifts, talents, and resources. The question isn't, when we look at someone like Johnny Manziel, maybe we think, man, if I had his potential, if I had his skill sets, I would have developed into something. Or, or maybe we even resent people like him and say, I wish I had what you had. And if I did, oh, I'd be somewhere else. But the question isn't whether we got someone else's talents or not, or why did this person receive this and I didn't. That's not the question. The question is, what are we going to do with what we have been given? What are we going to do with what we've been given? And I think in many ways that is what Jesus is showing us in this parable of the talents. Now, if you've been around uh, Christ's community on Sunday morning, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for the last 84 years. Uh, it's been a great journey. Uh, and, and also, I mean, it's, we, you know, we love going through books of the Bible. And we, we come to these texts and we want to wrestle with them and, and, and struggle through them uh, because we want to be faithful to God's Word. And so in the section we've been in, we've been looking at Jesus' last week on earth. And the last couple weeks, we've been in a section referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because Jesus is teaching from the Mount of Olives. It is not, contrary to what I thought when I was younger, uh, that it's not the all of it discourse. That's what I look, when I saw it, well, like, I never saw it in print, I just heard it. It's like, this is where Jesus is teaching about all of it, you know? So this is interesting. But it is not the all of it discourse, it's the all of it discourse. You understand, has anybody else had that thought? No. I, 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 all right, I, I got a, a lone sufferer with me. But the, the point is, in, in this discourse, Jesus is teaching on things like the coming judgment of God. He's talking about his return. He's talking about the end, the end times. I mean, really, you know, boring stuff. Uh, but Jesus is showing us, not only is he trying to keep us from this, this focus of trying to figure out his return and when and, wh and how it'll happen, he's, th that is not the point of his teaching in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus rather is trying to say, look, regardless of what the end times will be and when it will be, when I return, you are to live with this expected readiness of my return. And that's kind of what we looked at last week was this idea that Christ could return any minute or it could be a millennia from now. But that shouldn't change the way in which we live with this expected readiness. And then Jesus, as he kind of wraps up the parable of the ten virgins and transitions very naturally and quickly right into the parable of the talents, I think Jesus wants us to see the connection 
between this idea that, look, we do not know the day or time when Christ returns. And so therefore live with this expected readiness and here is what it looks like. And so I think Jesus, in trying to connect these two parables, I believe what he's trying to do for us is show us how we can avoid wasting our lives. Or or, or to put it another way, I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to get us to ask the question, as I mentioned, what will we do with what we've been given? What will we do with what we've been given? And I think the way in which we answer that question will determine if we will find ourselves wasting our lives. So before we jump into our text, I want to I pray for our time um, before we yeah, hear from the word of the Lord. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause uh, to just ask for your blessing on the teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that, that your spirit would illuminate and guide uh, our minds and our thoughts and hearts. Lord, I pray that anything that I say that is false, uh, that would be forgotten and rejected, and I pray that anything that is true, uh, that is aligned with your word, uh, would be understood and embraced uh, and lived out in our lives. So Lord, bless this time. May it be honoring to you and truly encouraging as well as convicting to us. Uh, We pray this in the name of your son and for his glory. Amen. So, Matthew 25, looking at 14 through 30. And and one thing just to point out again, just the the, the natural connection and flow from these two parables, Jesus wants us to see, and you notice in verse 14, it begins with the word for. Uh, And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, when you understand what this readiness life looks like, or that we should be ready at all times, let me show you what it looks like. And so when we back up and read in verse 13, as the parable of the ten virgins ends, you see Jesus' natural flow into the parable of talents. Watch, therefore... For you know neither the day nor, nor the hour, for it will be like a man going on a journey. And then, and then Jesus unpacks the parable of the talent here. And, and the thing that I want us to understand, the connection between these two parables is very important. We do not know when Christ returns, but that shouldn't change the way in which we live in this world. And Jesus is showing us what this life of preparedness and readiness looks like. And so now, now that we kind of understand how these two parables kind of fit together, let's jump in and, and see what Jesus is showing us. And I think the first thing that Jesus wants us to see in this parable is this, is that God delights in giving. God delights in giving, which may sound weird because I just said that Jesus is trying to teach us how to avoid wasting our lives. You know, how do we avoid wasting our lives? So how on earth does God delighting in giving have anything to do with me not wasting my life? I'm glad you asked that question. I would now like to answer it for you. So in Matthew 25, verses 14 and 15, we see the parable opened up. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now, I think what Jesus wants us to see in this, this picture uh, that he's kind of painting for us with this parable is, is a, a very, very simple, maybe, concept, but one that is no less fundamental, and in some ways, one that we are so quick to forget, and that is, that is this, is that God owns it all. God owns it all. Everything is his. And, and, and this is a concept that, I mean, you know, if you believe in God, maybe you kind of get it in general, like, okay, I understand this principle, but, but this is so vital that we grasp because, like most things, the way in which you use something or your ability to use it is really predicated on, on who owns it and, and, and who, how they choose to use it and distribute and share it. You know what I mean? Like, it all comes down to who owns something if we want to know how to use it properly. So, for example, my family, we have a swing set in our backyard, 
And, you know, it's not, nothing really glamorous. I think we got over like $8 on Craigslist. But our, our neighbors to the west of us love coming over and sharing it with us. Uh, Les and Candy are their names. They're uh, empty nesters. My girls call them lettuce and candy. Isn't that adorable? Oh, it's just funny. Uh, but they're just great, great neighbors. And they have two grandsons. And occasionally they come over in the backyard and they play. In the, and it's just, we love it. We love that we get to share this with our neighbors. Now, the reason they're able to enjoy it and benefit from the swing set is because it's ours. We own it. We have the right to do with it as we please. And it is our desire to share it with less and candy. It's a lot of fun. And, and their grandkids, like they're not coming over and swinging on it. But I mean, they could. Maybe, maybe at night, I'm not sure. But, but it's just something I want to, to understand is that the ownership of something dictates how that thing is to be used and how we can use it. Now, now when we start thinking about this principle as it relates to God, we quickly realize, wait a minute, so if God owns it all, then that means he has the right to do whatever he desires with it. And, and we like this idea when it comes to things like sunshine and mountains and like the aurora borealis or whatever, but, but when it comes to things like my possessions and my bank account and my education and my abilities and my time and my children, I, I'm less likely to quickly allow God to kind of autograph his signature on it as the owner. Because we like the idea of, of owning the things that we own, that we've worked for, we deserve it, we've earned it. You can't tell me how to use my things and my resources and my time. It's mine. But we need to understand something about this master. This master who really does have kind of a, a monopoly on everything. Is that this master is not just a hoarder of things, but he has chosen to share his goods with us. And, and if we miss out on, on this understanding that God owns it all, we will miss out not only on, on how we properly use things, but, but the joy that comes in being God's stewards. And if we fail to see God as the owner, it's going to mess our perspective of so many things. Uh, I, I remember I was reminded of this a few months ago. I was talking with my two oldest daughters, Lula, who is uh, eight, and Jane is six. Lula was talking about wanting to invite a friend over to her house. And I kind of just made this snarky comment. I was like, oh, it's your house? Oh, did you put the down payment on? Did you, are you paying the mortgage? And she's like, oh, it's your house, I guess. And then Jane, without skipping a beat, she goes, is it, well, isn't it God's house? <laughs> and she's like, she's like it doesn't, doesn't God own everything? I was like, dang it, you know? And so she was right, you know? I mean, like this little six-year-old theologian is putting this pastor in his place. But she was absolutely right. Jane had this understanding, like, if God owns everything, I mean, if he's the creator of it all, well, then you can't say this is really your house. I mean, and as simple as that principle is, it's one that we are so quick to forget. And it leads us into a lot of problems. So we do have to understand this master owns it all. But not, he is not simply, as I mentioned, this, this hoarding master of he wants to keep things for himself, but he graciously shares and distributes his resources to his stewards. That he is graciously chosen to give of what he has created to his servants, and he delights in doing so. But it is more than just simply God giving us gifts. It's not just, it's, we aren't simply the recipients of God's gifts. We are stewards entrusted with what God has given us, because a steward is different than a recipient. A recipient just receives something. A steward has been entrusted has been given something to be taken care of, to be cultivated, to be developed, to be recreated with. A steward is different than a recipient, and we have to understand the distinction between those relationships. When we see God as a gracious master, 
who delights in giving his servants resources to be utilized, we approach God and interact with him and our possessions very differently. We, we, we look at our time and our resources, our connections and privileges very differently when God owns it all. And I believe Jesus wants us to see that in this parable. But, but also we are guarded from seeing God as just simply this divine grandpa who just gives us things because he likes us. It is not just that we are the recipients of God's gifts, although that is true. We are stewards entrusted with what God has given us. But if all that we are and all that we have is based on what we have done, what we have worked for, we will find ourselves very easily on a slippery slope where we find ourselves saying, look, I, I've earned it, I've worked for it, I deserve it, therefore I have the right to do with my time, my possessions, my money, my family, however I want. And that puts us in this path of, of having kind of this closed-fisted approach to our time, to our resources, to our talents. As I mentioned earlier, this parable, I think, is Jesus' way of trying to show us how to not waste our lives. And so how do we avoid wasting our lives? Well, I think it means that we need to stop living by the can philosophy, which is make all you can, can all you make, and then sit on your can. That's, that's the philosophy that we need to reject, okay? I didn't come up with that, by the way. I've heard Pastor Tom say it, and it's brilliant, and it's just fun, and stitch that on a pillow if you want. But, but seriously, we, we need to get past this idea that, that I just want to consume and, and, and make as much as I can for my own benefit and gain. When we live in that way, I mean, that is a sad, hollow, and selfish, and, and ultimately corrosive way of looking at our lives, looking at our careers, looking at our possessions and resources, God wants so much more for us. But when all that we are and all that we have is a gift from God, graciously given to be stewarded, it changes the way we look at our time, our education, our relationships, our neighborhoods. It changes the way we look at our jobs and careers and investments. It changes the way we look at everything. God delights in giving. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we should receive his gifts joyfully. We should receive his gifts joyfully. And, and that means that regardless of what you've been given, regardless of, of how much or how little you think you have, God has granted you influence, opportunities, connections, abilities, and talents that he hasn't given to other people. And we need to be very careful that we don't get so preoccupied with this like, but I'm not as good as him. I'm not as talented as her. I don't make as much as they do. I don't live where they do. When we get so preoccupied in comparing ourselves to others, we fail to live into the identity and reality that God has called us where we are, called us to be who we are for a purpose. We should not get so preoccupied with thinking, but I don't have what they have. This isn't the point of the parable. Because God chooses to distribute as he desires. And him being infinite in wisdom, I think knows how to best invest his resources. And so we need to stop thinking about, but if I, 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 if I only had this and if I had this, then I could be helpful and productive and fruitful. We need to stop thinking in those ways. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't refrain, though, from, from improving and growing and learning. I mean, obviously, this is not a, a command to be stagnant and just be content, but we should understand that God has called us where we are for a purpose. And when we continue to live our lives with this comparison game of, I need to be like them, I need to live where they are, I need to make as much as she does, we will find ourselves missing out on how God has created us. 
Steve Jobs, there's a quote attributed to Steve Jobs, and he says this. I think it's a really helpful way of kind of, kind of summarizing this point. He says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. See, that's really helpful. Your time is limited. We, we, we have such a short amount of time. Don't waste it trying to be someone you're not. Understand who God has called you, where he has called you, and what he has called you with. And when, you, when we see the resources God has given us, we need to see them not, we need to be careful that we don't receive them with this idea of entitlement, that, that we deserve them, or, or, or this kind of idea of, of disappointment that I deserve more than what I've been given, or a sense of selfishness that I deserve to use this on myself because it's mine and I've earned it. Because God delights in his giving, we need to receive his gifts joyfully. But the reason God delights in his giving is because he delights in our working. He delights in seeing what we do with what he has given us. I mean, there's, some, there's just something amazing about the way in which throughout the biblical narrative that God has done this. I mean, God created the world perfect and he invites Adam into the Garden of Eden. And what does he ask Adam to do? To name the animals. And is it because God wasn't creative? Like, I'm so tired of naming things. Like, here you do it. No, he invites Adam in to participate in his work of recreating with what he created. And this is how God works. He invites us in not just to be recipients, but stewards of his good creation. God delights in giving, but it's because he also delights in our working. Now, if you remember in the parable, the first two servants, uh, they received, the first servant received five talents, the second servant uh, received two talents. And, and just, just for some context, the word talent, we're not talking like knife juggling or something like that, or um, yeah, it, it's the idea in the Old Testament, the word talent was this unit of, of weight, roughly about 75 pounds, and in the New Testament, it, it had become a, a unit of monetary worth. And it was the equivalent of about 20 years uh, of wages of a day laborer, which in, in modern uh, day you know, amounts of money, uh, we're, we're talking, it's close to about $500,000, $600,000, okay? So that's a big chunk of change. And so even the, the servant who received one talent, he was given a whole lot to take care of and invest and to steward and to multiply, and so when we understand that, it kind of is like, okay, we're talking about, you know, millions of dollars here of investments and what they're being entrusted with. So the first servant is entrusted with five, and he instantly, quickly goes and invests it, trades with it, and gets five more. The second servant receives two, and he, in like manner, goes and invests and trades and receives two more. But the third servant is not as productive. Now, what's interesting, and I want to be clear, you know, this parable is not, it is not purely about monetary value and worth. This is not like, this is only about money. The, the word, I mean, the reason why the word talent is now in our English language is because it comes from this parable to refer to various abilities that we have been given. It's not just about money, so please make sure that that is clear in your mind. And, and what's important to see, too, is that the kicker here is that both the first two servants, when they are rewarded and celebrated by the master, notice that he says the exact same thing to both of them. It's not that one is praised over the other, but both of them, even though they produce different amounts, both receive the same reward and praise. Look at verses 21 and 23. It's the exact same words given by the master. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, the interesting thing to note also is that, is that the master says to both of them that they were faithful over little. Both, both of them. So the, 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 the servant had five talents and the servant had two. Both of them are told that they were faithful over little. 
The, the reason I say all of this is, is that we have to understand that, that the point of this parable is not focusing on how much we have been given, but what we do with what we have been given. Let me say that again. It is not about how much we have been given, but what we do with what we have been given. That's why the master is praising both of them in the same way. It's not about their bottom line and what they produce, but the fact is that the master is approving of their work, is delighting in their work, is celebrating their work, not because of their bottom line, but because the fact that they understood that the master owned it all, that he entrusted them with great resources, and they lived into that identity as a steward, and they multiplied what they had so that it could be created, recreated, and shared, and multiplied beyond that. Again, the point that Jesus is making in this parable is that if we want to avoid wasting our lives, it comes down to the question of what will you do with what you've been given? So again, the first two servants, they, they, they go to work right away. If you notice in verse 16, it says, the first servant says, he went at once. So you kind of even sense this eagerness, this excitement to kind of get to work, that he's, he's delighting in the fact that the master has entrusted him with this resource to go and to invest and to work and to cultivate, to multiply. But then contrast that with the third servant. And what does he do? He does very little. He takes his talent and he buries it in the ground. And, and, and it, which is kind of a strange thing, like what's he doing here? What is the purpose of this? And, and, and what we notice when, when the master calls the third servant to himself, you know, the language that the, the servant uses in kind of responding to the master, it's, I mean, it's, he's kind of on the defensive. He's like, look, hey, I, I, I gave you your money back. You know, I, I buried it. It's fine. I mean, like, what's your problem? What are you complaining about? And he even kind of blames the master. He's like, you know, I knew you to be a shrewd master. And so I needed to do this because you aren't a good person. Which is very reminiscent, if you remember, in the garden, when Adam and Eve fell, what does Adam do? He blames Eve for giving him the apple, and then he blames God for giving him Eve. And the servant is doing the same thing here. Like, look, you're, you're a shrewd master, so I chose to keep it and protect it. So here it is. It's yours. You can't blame me. And the master is furious. And he brings out his condemnation and judgment, and he condemns him. And we have to understand something here. The third servant is judged not because he did something bad. It's because he failed to do something good. There's a, there's a difference between what, what is referred to as sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission is when we do that which we ought not to do. Okay, That is a sin of commission. A sin of omission is when we don't do that which we ought to do. And in this case, the master is condemning and punishing this servant because of his sin of omission, because he did not do what he was supposed to do. We tend to think that God is only interested in the thou shalt not commands, that that's all he's wrapped up with. And while that is important, we should listen to those and abide by those commands. We must also understand that the Christian life is not simply about having our hands clean from immoral behavior but it's also about getting our hands dirty in the work God has called us to. It is not just about refraining from immoral behavior, although that is true. We must be faithful and fruitful with what God has given us. So think about this. I mean, if I live my life at the end of my life, and if my case before God is, hey, hey, I didn't cheat on my wife. I never cheated on my taxes. I, I, never, I never got drunk on wine or alcohol. I, 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 you know, if I, I never killed anybody. Like if, if this is my case, 
if it's just a bunch of the thou shalt nots that I refrain from, I'm missing a whole other chunk of what faithfulness and fruitfulness looks like. And that is why the master is upset with the servant. And one of the things that I think we need to consider about this is that, and maybe we don't consider it enough, is that when we think about being faithful and being fruitful, it is, yes, absolutely, it it has so much to do with, with our obedience and our spiritual devotion and development. But perhaps what we don't think about enough is that what Jesus is teaching at here is that when he calls us to be good stewards with what God has given us, I believe that he is speaking about our areas of influence, our places of work, our our role as students in our schools, our roles in our neighborhoods and communities and homes. I don't think we think enough about God equipping us and calling us to be his stewards wherever he has placed us. It's not like there's this varsity squad of stewards that do things for the church and then there's the junior varsity squad that is out there kind of making money and and taking care of families and, and gaining an education. That is a false dichotomy that is so dangerous within the church and in our culture. And so I think we should ask ourselves this question, am I living my life in my area of influence, in my school, in my home, in my place of work, with a perspective that God has called me here and equipped me with connections and resources and abilities to be stewarded for his purposes? Are we working in such a way that we are being faithful and fruitful where we are, with what we have, and as who we are? And again, it comes back to this question of what will we do with what we've been given? You see, I think one of the reasons why the the third servant was called wicked is because he failed to produce something that could be shared and developed, that that he was not faithful in creating. So the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about how he says, he says, refrain from stealing. And and sometimes we just kind of stop there like, yeah, we shouldn't steal because that's bad. But what does Paul say? He says, refrain from stealing. Why? So that you might have something to share with others. That the whole purpose of us refraining from stealing is that we might be people who work honestly, that we might be able to provide for others. And the reason the master is upset with the servant is because he did not produce anything. Sure, you you kept it, you, you didn't lose it, but that's not what I asked you to do. Because you're not just a recipient, you're a steward. And you did not steward what I gave you. And you did not produce in such a way that allowed other people to benefit. You didn't create something beautiful, good, and useful that others could delight in and gain an advantage from. That's why the servant is called wicked and slothful. Using our God-given talents and resources and connections and relationships and education and privileges, this is the means by which we can be faithful and fruitful in our world. And that that kind of life will be rewarded with with what Jesus says in the parable, with additional opportunities to be faithful and fruitful. It's not, hey, great, you've done a great job, here is your retirement plan, or here is your bonus, but it's, hey, you have been faithful and little, I am giving you more opportunities to be a great steward for the benefit of others and the glory of my name. I mean, doesn't, doesn't this sound like a much more meaningful way to think about what we are going to be doing tomorrow morning, like wherever you find yourself tomorrow, like as we enter our schools, as we enter our communities and homes and neighborhoods and places of work, I mean, doesn't this seem like a much more like life-giving, energizing way of thinking about our influence, our callings, our vocations? 
that God has equipped us with something. He has entrusted us with talents to be used for the good of others, not just to be used for compensation and, and for consumption. Doesn't, I mean, just imagine, as we think about the church gathered, this is a beautiful place. You're all beautiful people here. But as we scatter from this place, think about what it would look like for us as the church to see who we are, what we have, and where we have been placed as a means by which God is at work in the world. You see, we have all been entrusted with talents. Each and every one of us has, has some talent, some ability, some skill. All of us have it. In, rega- in varying degrees for sure, some of us have amazing abilities, amazing talents, a- amazing financial assets, amazing creative abilities, amazing education. Some of you have more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know, you're just brilliant. We all have varying degrees of talents. The question is, what will we do with what we've been given? How are we stewarding what God has given us? for the good of others, and for the glory of his name. God delights in our working. And so that means we should use what he has given fruitfully. So how do we avoid wasting our lives? We must receive God's gifts joyfully and use them fruitfully. We must be intentional and diligent with what God has given us to not squander them and waste them away to pursue them with excellence, not for the sake of excellence, but so that we might be able to be faithful and fruitful with what God has given us for the good of others. And when we do this, we will come to find that God not only delights in giving and delights in our working, but he also delights in rewarding. And this is really where where the parable is kind of building towards, is is that the master delights in rewarding his servants. Now, we may be tempted to, like the third servant, to kind of see God as this shrewd boss, this, this, this hoarder, this miser who just wants everything for himself, or, or he's this guy just waiting to bust you when you do something wrong. Not only is that a corrupt and pernicious, destructive lie about God, but it keeps us from understanding our relationship to him. That on the contrary, God is not a hoarder. God is not this manipulative boss who is micromanaging us. Rather, he is this master who is overjoyed at the amazing work that his stewards have done. He delights in what they have done. No one else in the parable, no one else is more excited about and delighted in the work of the servants than the master. Even more than the servants themselves, the master is delighting in the work that his servants have done. He is overjoyed at their faithful and fruitful work as servants. It is the master who delights in rewarding And what that means is that no one else in your life wants you to succeed and flourish and thrive more than God does. Nobody. He is cheering you on in your place of influence. He is is urging you to be faithful and fruitful, not because he wants something from you, but because he wants something for you and for others. God is the one cheering on us in our places of influence and work. He so desperately wants to say over each and every one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. You see, because all all of us deep down, we want to be rewarded. We want to be rewarded for something. We want to be told we've done good work. Whatever it may be. I mean, students, like, you may think that, like, having no grades would be awesome, but it would be a terrible thing. Like, you, you want to be told, like, I passed, I passed the test. I, I want to know how well I did. I want to be recognized. Whether it's I've done bad work or good work, I just want to know. There's something really terrifying about never receiving any kind of feedback whatsoever 
about your work, about what you're doing, if you never receive praise or recognition from, from your boss, from your spouse, from your family, from parents, neighbors, teachers, that is, a, that is a terrifying place to be and we want to be rewarded, but here's the question. Who on earth has the authority to look at the portfolio of your entire life and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Who has the ability to look at everything you've done and give you that commendation, to actually declare that over you? No one does. Because no one has seen your entire life other than you, and you really want to be like, good job. Like, that doesn't work for us to be our own words of affirmation. That's sad and pathetic and hollow. The only person who is capable of looking at your entire life and declaring over you with joy, well done, good and faithful servant, is the one who gave you your life. In fact, it is the one who gave his life for you. If we want to be people who hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant, then we need to be people who are faithful and fruitful with what God has given us, that we are seeking his approval and no one else's. We are seeking his reward and no one else's. You see, God wants to share he, God wants us to share in his joy of being a blessing to others because that's who God is. And when we see our work, our influences, everything that he, we have received as an opportunity to bless others, we get a taste of what it's like to be God in some ways. I'm not saying that we are God, but we, we experience godliness. He wants us to share in his joy of being a blessing to others, in, in, in being a creator who creates beautiful, useful, practical, lovely things for other people to enjoy and benefit from. When we do that, we experience what it's like to be God. You see, in our faithful and fruitful work done for each other, we reflect the interdependence and the interpersonal nature of God because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we work, as we serve, as we seek to grow in our spheres of influence, serving others, we experience what it is like to be the interdependent, interpersonal God of all things. And again, it doesn't matter how much you make. That's not the point. It doesn't matter how big your home is. It doesn't matter how many AP classes you're taking. The point is not how much have I been given, how much will I get. It is what will you do with what God has given you. You have been given influence. You've been given relationships and connections and resources and talents beyond what we can even see. And the question is, what will we do with them? Will we use them for personal consumption and compensation only? Or will we see what we have been entrusted with, with as an opportunity for compassion and contribution? What will we do with what we've been given? If we want to be people who desire to join God in his work of restoring this world, of bringing peace to this world, and avoid the danger of wasting our lives, then we must be people who seek to do our work, to pursue our education, to, to grow in our callings, to love our neighbors and families well, to seek the good of all in such a way that we desire to hear from him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is what Christ has called us to. This is what faithfulness to Christ looks like. This is what following Jesus looks like. Following the one who, who gave his life so that we wouldn't have to waste our life. Who, 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 the true master who humbled himself to the point of being a servant on to, to the point of death on a cross so that we might in some ways join the family business, so to speak. 
This master who humbled himself, this one who gave his life so that we wouldn't waste ours, has come to invite us into the work that his father is doing. And he wants his family business to grow. No one, no one here wants to waste their life. And God has given you your life and everything within it. And the question still remains, what will we do with what he has given us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we come to you asking that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes to see you as the one who owns it all, as not only the creator and the author of life and all that is within life, but Lord, as the great and gracious master who has offered us the opportunity to be his stewards. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of, of our of our greed, of our materialism, of our entitlement. Would you give us an opportunity, Lord, to to see all that we have as a gift from you, the giver of all good gifts, you are. And Lord, may you also help us to see that you have called us to be your stewards for the good of all people and the glory of your name. Lord, I pray that you would give us this vision as we enter into wherever you have called us to be this week. Help us to see with new eyes, to have new hearts and new ears as we enter in seeking to be faithful and fruitful with what you have given us. And may you do it, Lord, in a way that would truly bring about your kingdom, advance the truth of of your shalom and peace in this world so that you might be glorified and that others may come to see the goodness of our God and creator, our master, who has come to give his life that we wouldn't waste ours. May it be so in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.